Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Really nice to be with you again, and sorry things are a little bit late this week in getting this episode out, uh, but you might hear why, just from my voice, there's still a trace of the heavy cold that I've been battling with over the last several days that's wiped out quite a few days of work and put me behind on all fronts. And so, sorry that I'm a bit late this week, but better late than never, hopefully. And before we get on to this week's subject, a follow-up from last week, which you remember was about being a conservative, Jeff Robson, who's taken over much of the editorial work that I used to do at Matthias Media and is doing an outstanding job, Jeff got in touch with a really great quote about the subject of being a conservative. He writes as follows. You reminded me of when Peter Jensen became Archbishop of Sydney when I'd been working at Anglican Media for just over a year. And the secular media picked up on the label radical conservative that had been applied to Peter at some point. He said he liked the label and accepted it. I had to transcribe the press conference for work, and so I still have it filed away. Here is what he said. Only a conservative could be radical. A conservative, to my mind, is someone who takes matters through to the foundations and is convinced about the foundations. In a postmodern world, this is rare. And indeed, some of the flack we get as a church, with complaints about the way we behave and the way we speak, are simply a misunderstanding. We are very serious people, with a serious intellectual and moral agenda, in a world where these things are treated somewhat as though they don't matter as much. Now, we have certain base convictions which are terrifically important to us. Having those base convictions frees us to be extraordinarily flexible about things that are of secondary nature. That's very well put, isn't it? And thanks so much, Jeff, for sending in that quote. And if you'd like to check out last week's post, which was a member-only post, a partner-only post, I've now made it sort of freely available to everybody and unlocked it. You can go over to thepainfultruth.online and check that out. It's called Who Wants to Be a Conservative? But on to this week's episode, which is about bananas and Christian books. As a writer arguing in favour of Christian books, I feel a bit like a banana grower arguing in favour of bananas. And that's what it was like in my family growing up. My dad's family grew bananas at a little place called Danoon, just outside Lismore. My grandfather, in fact, was at one point the president of the North Coast Banana Growers Federation. He was the big banana, I guess you could say. And so it's hardly surprising that our family consumed bananas in impressive quantities and in every conceivable format. We had them mashed on bread, we had them sliced on our wheat bix, we even baked them in the queen of all cakes, the banana cake with lemon icing. We ate them raw, we had them fritted, we even barbecued. Uh, Slicing a banana lengthways, barbecuing it, skin side down, absolutely delicious. We were banana people. And we had the banana key rings and other banana-themed merchandise to prove it. There was even a poster framed on the wall on our back veranda. This is a podcast, of course, and so you can't see the poster, which I've managed to find amazingly online and post in the text version of this episode over on the website. But it was a picture of children playing happily in a playground with the slogan, The road to good health is paved with banana peels. Now, it always struck me that having a road paved with banana peels 
was also quite possibly dangerous to health, but perhaps the banana lobby could be forgiven for overlooking this. What else would you expect them to be but blindly and joyously pro-banana? Now, I feel rather like this in arguing that the road to spiritual health is paved with Christian books. What else would I say, you might think, as a lifelong Christian writer and publisher? But it's a little different, I think. I'm not sure that a conviction about the all-purpose benefits of bananas was the reason my grandfather got into banana growing and spent his life promoting them. Perhaps it was. Perhaps the banana passion came first and then the desire to grow them. But it certainly has been that way for me. I've spent my ministry life, as it turns out, writing and editing and publishing Christian books and resources, precisely because I've got a strong conviction about their value, a very strong conviction. And that conviction has three pillars, I guess you'd say. The first one is a theological one. It's a theological belief in the power of the word. It's a cliche, I guess, to say that we live in a very visual age where people prefer to watch rather than to read. And this is true enough, I guess, but only insofar as it is a description of every age. People have always preferred the immediacy of the image and the visual. That's why that little thing called idolatry, the worship of a visual representation of the divine, is condemned so widely and so vigorously in the Bible. It's always been humanity's besetting sin. The humiliation of the word, as Jacques Ellul put it, is a feature not just of modernity, but of history. Our rejection of God is a rebellion against him who cannot be seen and a turning to the worship of created things that can be seen. Rather than seeing in the creation evidence for the invisible God and honouring and thanking and listening to him and his revelation, we turn away from him and we suppress the truth. We turn instead to what can be immediately seen and worship that instead. Because the visual is immediate and uninterpreted. It has no words. It is dumb as the idols are often described, as Isaiah described that idol that we make out of a piece of wood. Five minutes ago, we were barbecuing bananas over it. Now we've fashioned it into a shape and are thinking that this thing we've created, this thing we can see, provides the meaning for our lives. The visual suits us very well because we simply experience it and decide for ourselves what it means. And so a preference for seeing and watching over listening and reading is more than a difference in learning style or personal taste, although of course it's partly that. It's also deeply rooted in our human unwillingness to learn the truth about ourselves and God and the world by listening, by humbly listening to his word the word that reveals the truth of everything to us. The Christian lives by faith, not by sight. And our faith is in the word of Christ that we hear. However, if it is God's powerful word that we should turn to and listen to and believe, 
That still leaves us asking why Christian books are important. In fact, why is the Bible not the only book we publish and read? Well, that brings us to the second foundation for the importance of Christian books and for Christian reading, and it's also a theological foundation. The Word of God is authoritatively revealed and inscripturated in Scripture, in the Bible. And the Bible remains the supreme and only source for our knowledge of God. But God's Word is communicated and does its powerful work as His people speak it. That's His purpose as well. Whether it's in the teaching, preaching kind of speech that pastors and teachers employ, or in the one another speech of His people in multiple different ways, God speaks his word through us. His word is spoken and heard and grasped and understood through the mediation of human speech. Christian books are vital and important because Christian speech is vital and important. We receive God's word in scripture and then by his spirit we speak it. We preach it so that it can be heard and believed. We preach it and teach it and explain and expound and admonish and encourage and exhort it. And we write it and read it. And this raises the third pillar of Christian reading. Why reading? Why not just hearing? Why bother with books and reading if we have sermons and podcasts? Well, the answer is obvious to anyone who has ever enjoyed the benefits of not just listening to good biblical sermons but of reading the Bible for yourself. Because something different happens when we read the Bible ourselves. Because reading is a different mode of receiving and hearing and engaging with words. Reading is more flexible and offers different opportunities for learning. When we read, we can speed up or slow down. We can skim and gain an impression of the whole, and then go back and pour over words and sentences and milk them for all they're worth. We can pause and ask mental questions and then reread for possible answers. When we read a particularly powerful or striking sentence or phrase or metaphor, we can stop to appreciate it and allow its power to penetrate our minds. This is why the Bible itself recommends reading and rereading and meditating over the word so that its sweetness can enter our soul. I'm thinking of that verse in Joshua 1 where Joshua reads and meditates over the law and pretty much all of Psalm 119. Reading, in other words, is deep and interactive. We're not simply receiving the words at the pace and direction of the speaker as you are, of course, in this podcast, we're engaging with the words and drawing more from them because we're reading them. And this is why a book or an extended essay can mount a significant argument or take us deep into the truth of some aspect of God's word in a way that a sermon or a talk or a podcast can't. Reading helps us to think and to change our minds, again, in a different way, from what hearing or listening can achieve. And I'm clearly not against hearing and listening and speaking because that's what we're all doing now. But if Christian growth includes the renewal of the mind, then I think we can say that the road to spiritual health is indeed paved with biblically faithful Christian books. In God's providence, 
he's given us this powerful means of learning and growing in our knowledge of him. Why would we not take advantage of that blessing that God has provided? When our hearts and minds are so prone to spiritual ill health, why would we turn our nose up at the rich nutrition that a diet of Christian reading supplies? Well, I guess it's because we're human. We're lazy and inattentive, even to our own detriment. We prefer things on our own terms and in our own way. Sometimes, in the end, we'd rather just eat bananas. Well, there's so much else to say on this topic and in this episode. There's the irony, of course, that I'm doing a podcast here to persuade you of the value of Christian books, but I guess that's because I do believe, too, in the value of audio and of hearing and of listening, and the podcast revolution has been very helpful in all of that. But all the same, reading and reading the newsletter or text version of The Painful Truth each week is a different experience and has some benefits, and especially reading books where we can explore and understand and learn things at length and depth and can mull over them over time, it does achieve things that the podcast can't achieve. Then again, the podcast can also achieve things that the book can't achieve. It can be something that you quickly consume and benefit from while you're out on your daily walk, because I know some of you are at this very moment as you're listening to this week's episode. And of course, the sermon also does things that the book doesn't do. Each medium, in a sense, has its strengths and is really important in its own way. But that's kind of my argument, I guess, that books achieve something that other media don't achieve, and it's really to our detriment if we don't take advantage of that. The other thing that comes to mind on this topic, especially as I look back over the past several decades, is that I think we promote books and reading in churches far less than we used to. We might say that, well, this is because people don't read anymore. That would be the the reason. But I think that's a consequence rather than a cause. Because it was no different in the 1980s and 90s. Everyone back then also said that reading was dead. In that case, because of television, just as everybody today blames the internet. But in times past, churches promoted and sold and discussed books And those churches that did that regularly, unsurprisingly, found that they'd fostered a healthy culture of Christian reading. And we could easily do so again. It's really just a matter of will and priorities, it seems to me. Well, what do you think about Christian reading and Christian books? What's your own practice of Christian reading and books? And how have you found them useful? And what are your thoughts about what we could do to rekindle, so to speak, a culture of Christian reading and books in our churches. I'd be interested, as always, in your thoughts and reactions. You can send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com. You can go over to the website at thepainfultruth.online and leave a comment there under the post as well. Well, thanks once again for being here this week. This has been one of the free public posts on the Painful Truth list, so it's been great to have everyone here for this edition. I look forward to being with you next week. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm